Good evening. This is Cinema 60. An extrait d'une ballade de pauvre Pepe. Bertel Brecht. She agrees to take off her clothes Tuesday morning, 8 o'clock on the beach. What do you think of him? Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. It's time for another Kiss, Mary Kill episode. Let's do it. Let's kiss him, marry him, and kill him all on the same day. All right. It's 1963 this week. For anybody who's listening to a Kiss, Mary Kill episode of ours for the first time, we pick a year. We're going in order, 1960 to 1969, we're up to 1963, and we're each picking a movie that we've been wanting to see from that year, aka Kiss, a movie that we love from that year, which is The Mary, and a movie that we hate from that year, which is The Kill. And we've got a heck of a lineup tonight. Yeah, this is our most international lineup, I guess. Yeah. Uh, let me get into some of the big movies of the year. I'll, I'll run down the top 10. Number one was Cleopatra, a hugely expensive movie. So it still was kind of considered a flop, but it was still the, the number one moneymaker of the year. So Cleopatra's number one. How the West Was Won was number two. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World was number three. Tom Jones was number four. Irma La Douce, number five. The Sword and the Stone, number six. Son of Flubber. Number seven, The Birds. Number eight, Dr. No. Number nine, Dr. No actually came out in the UK in 62, but in 63 it made a bundle in the US. And then number 10 was The VIPs, another Elizabeth Taylor movie. I'm impressed with how much of that we've actually watched. Yeah, we're getting there. We're slowly but surely making our way through all the top movies of the 60s. But I also like how we tend to concentrate on the lesser known movies, too. That's really one of the main reasons I wanted to do this show is to find all those undiscovered gems from the 60s. So, Undiscovered gems such as Fun in Acapulco and <laughs> It Happened at the World's Fair, the two Elvis movies that came out this year. Uh, if you say so, which you said you actually kind of liked one of those, right? Yeah, Acapulco is great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to it. Don't worry. There's definitely going to be a best of Elvis episode. And then we'll have to do all the worst of Elvis. will be <laughs> the follow-up episode. Well, he's got like 24 movies, right? So that, that works out to about four episodes worth of Elvis movies. It's actually, I think, 31 movies. In the 60s? In total. Wow. He didn't have that many in the 50s, though, so... Some of the other movies from this year that we've covered already, Barren Lives, Cool World, Gone Are the Days, Passenger, From Russia with Love, which is actually released in the UK this year, and Mouse on the Moon. And some of the other big movies that came out, The Great Escape, which is another one of those movies. I'm surprised it didn't make the top 10, but it didn't. Charade, The Leopard, The Pink Panther, HUD, Billy Liar, The Nutty Professor, Bye Bye Birdie. An eight and a half, right? Eight and a half, yeah, definitely. So a lot of loves. It's actually kind of hard to choose a love in a way. Yeah. Well, let's get right into it. Yeah. Um, we'll start with a movie from Sweden, not directed by Ingmar Bergman, uh, which was my kiss pick 
It's called Raven's End. Bo Viterberg is the director. I picked it because I don't really know Swedish cinema outside of Bergman, really. So I wanted to, you know, see what else is out there. And Bo Viterberg is probably, after Bergman, the most well-known Swedish director of the 60s. Elvira Madigan was kind of a big hit in the States uh, in 67, I think. Known more for its soundtrack, Raven's End, one of Bo Viterberg's earlier movies, kind of semi-autobiographical, um, is uh, you know, a beloved movie in Sweden, and it's kind of been on my radar for a while. So we watched it, and uh, and I thought it was pretty good. I was really impressed, actually. This could have been a Mary at this point, now that we've seen it. This movie set in 1936 in the poor section of Malmo, Sweden, which is one of the largest cities in Sweden, a city I don't know much about. And it's about this boy, Anders, who is uh, attempting to be a writer. He's observing all of the people in his neighborhood and jotting their stories down into a portrait of his neighborhood. And he sends it off to a, uh, a publisher. He's got a drunken dad who, uh, who, who can't hold a job and, uh, and a mom who does laundry to support the family. And they live in a, you know small little apartment and uh you know life is hard but Anders wants to break away wants to get published and uh and leave his well I'm not gonna say leave his impoverished neighborhood behind but uh, that sort of becomes the ultimate arc for his character as he, he realizes he just can't stay in this awful place any longer so it's it's a bit of a, a downer. It's a it's a bummer of a movie, but there there are moments of lightness to to keep it watchable. It feels very British to me. It feels like totally uh, like a kitchen sink drama. It's very much of that world. There's like a an unwanted pregnancy that happens, and you know even like Anders is has this very you know, feels like a a really British attitude where he's you know he's got this sort of punk sort of screw you attitude towards all his uh, all the like his busybody neighbors and and uh you know everybody's got sort of a rebellious streak sort of an angry young man thing going on so i i think you may have liked this one even more than i did it is totally a kitchen sink drama and that's what i thought was so intriguing about it but the one thing that i liked about this that that you don't typically get in british films i mean it's devastatingly depressing everyone's flawed and everyone's flaws are on parade in this whole film and the general theme and the general attitude is this idea of being stuck somewhere and it very much deals with class and yet the thing that's really interesting about this that you don't typically get in British cinema is that it was so kind you know there was something that was everyone is so miserable but they don't take it out on each other (laughs) In a way, I mean, like, they're sort of all just taking it out on themselves. And the fact that they're all hurting themselves is what hurts the people around them, which I thought was a really interesting 
way to sort of portray the, these types of characters that again typically with the, with British cinema you get these people lashing out at each other because they're upset with themselves but here I felt like there was really no one who was trying to be mean to anybody else and yet of course you know such something like the father who is this like raging alcoholic and clearly is deeply depressed he kept, talks about getting work he never can get a job uh, every time you know something comes up someone else swoops in and takes it kind of thing or at least that's the that's the story he tells himself over and over again but he, he's a non-violent alcoholic father which I think is sort of rare in cinema he's never trying to beat anyone up or, or you know put anyone down and in fact when I think the the most uh, affecting scene in the entire film is when the father comes home super drunk. I think he's been gambling, of course, and, and he's lost most of the money that he's won. And his son confronts him. Honestly, in like a, a sympathetic way, his son's not screaming at him. He's just like, Dad, like what? Like you keep doing this. Like why? You know, you got to stop. This this needs to stop. And the father talks about essentially just, you know, how he doesn't realize. Like and he, it's funny because he's like acknowledging it. And he's saying like, I don't, I you, you know, I see you. Uh, from behind a diving bell submerged in the ocean and I see mm. you from behind the glass and you know here I am hurting you but like I'm not connected this alcohol has created this prison for him but it's not even alcohol it really it sounds more like just depression it sounds like the sort of the doldrums of blue collar domesticity more than uh, anything else that seems to be getting him down but in that description I mean it's like it's so painful to hear and it's also something that um, is fairly recognizable and also it's understandable it, it makes you it suddenly makes the alcoholism seem like the better option than having to deal with such crippling depression yeah the frustration for the audience and for his family though is that instead of trying to solve his problems he just ignores them by getting drunk and I mean the diving bell is a it's a perfect metaphor for for what he's doing and who hasn't gone deep sea diving in that diving bell themselves and it's affecting. There is blame. I mean, the father blames his drunkenness on, on an infidelity on the part of Anders' mother. And so the mother gets to explain her side of the story, how she has an affair with some guy across the courtyard uh, because the father's such a drunk. So they're you know sort of blaming each other for how miserable their lives are. But but you're right, there is a kindness there. They never say that to each other's faces. They sort of just blame each other behind each other's backs. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, everyone's miserable. It is a sort of chicken-and-the-egg situation where what else is there for her to do? You know, she has this husband that's MIA half the time or drunk, and and then when she tells you the story, it's a very it's almost an understandable story, even though I wouldn't say that I'm like, pro infidelity so much but like y you feel for her you you know the son tries to come at her and accuse her of something and then she explains it and even the son kind of backs down you know that's probably the only harsh moment in the, in the whole film and it, it's just it's interesting how it's done it's just interesting how they approach it and then the father too you know like he clearly it's very clear to me at least that he's this very charming person and he's someone who clearly has big dreams and, and grandiose visions for himself and his son and the scene where his son hears back from a publisher and then finds out that they want to see him in stockholm and talk to him in person and everyone's celebrating in the family they're also happy you know they're they're all they're sort of 
you know, messing around. They're all being silly. And everyone's so thrilled just for their son to have made it. And he's, the father sits there and tells him about the cognacs of the world and how to smoke a cigar. Things that are even more than you would anticipate that the son even needs to deal with in, at this one moment in time. But everyone gets so excited and happy about it. But there's just something really like kind and sweet in this film that this just goes under the surface of it just being deeply <laughs> like depressingly miserable because of the whole holding pattern aspect which i found to be really dark i mean like if like you ever have felt stuck somewhere in your life like this is the type of movie that will not make you feel better <laughs> about <laughs> it you know or like you're you're going to watch this and you're going to be like oh man i've I remember feeling that way. I remember feeling like, uh, if only, uh, you know, if only my, my number comes in, like you try and, and everything you try doesn't get you anywhere. And you start to, you know, look at your horoscope instead. <laughs> and the, I mean, there are moments of lightness in the movie and the, this, this neighborhood is filled with all sorts of characters and you sort of get moments with a bunch of the people from around the, the area. And there's, there's a lot of humor and, and I wouldn't say joy exactly, but some good gags like, I don't know, gags, but, you know, have the drunken or crazy old guy who's always in the courtyard talking about this old lilac tree that's there that, you know, if somebody just took care of it, it could bloom and uh, produce some beauty and everything would smell nice. But it's, and it's clearly a metaphor for what's going on in this movie. But, you know, it's just, it's also just an amusing little anecdote about this, this old crazy guy who's obsessed with this lilac tree. And there's, Sixten, the football player who is is getting a chance to get out of town for a little while with his football team and he wants to go to Paris and he's really excited about the prostitutes in Paris because they wear fur coats and he thinks that's real class and wants to get a chance to spend some time with those prostitutes in fur coats. And even the, the father, when he's not in a stupor from being so drunk, is a pretty charming guy, as you were saying. He's you know, he's got the whole gag where he sits down to eat and he selects the napkin from some fancy hotel that, you know, they've got a stockpile of napkins and then the, the mother asks, so oh, which, which napkin do you want? And he, he, he goes through a whole routine about the, no, not this hotel, this, this other hotel. And his, you know, obviously, you know, another metaphor there too, but it's, uh, you know, just these dreams of, of living better, you know, this living the high life that, you, that they will never actually live. It's not end-to-end nothing but grueling, depressing hardship for these people. And I think that's why it's probably so beloved by Swedes and what makes it so watchable. Yeah, well, Andrews says that the book that he's trying to get published is essentially like a a love letter to the people on his block and his neighborhood. And that's what the whole movie really is. And that's what's nice about it, as you're saying. These little moments and these little bits of conversation with random people and it's nice it's just like a nice portrait of sort of working class sweden the city that they show is so industrial and it doesn't it looks more like northern england than it looks like any image i would ever have of sweden in my mind so mm-hmm. i mean, it really kind of reminds me of that monty python sketch where there it's in this northern mining town in the sun comes home to his very literary parents who are you know published authors and says that he wants to be a, a minor much to the dismay <laughs> of his parents and so i think that's part of the problem with this movie is that you know in 1963 we probably none of this stuff had become a cliche yet but but even you know 
later in the 60s. It, it, a lot of movies hit the same beats and, and touch on a lot of similar material. But even like, you know, it's it's basically just Sons and Lovers. It's D.H. Lawrence. It's, you know, the, the story has been around for a long, long time. And, and it's also interesting that this is set in 1936, which, and there's, and there's sort of this political aspect to it that's really kind of underplayed the there's a Nazi party in Sweden that's trying to, you know, it's really appealing to the the impoverished people in town and, and presenting themselves as the workers' party. And it, and you you get this idea that it's, uh, you know, people like Anders who can sort of see through the populist appeal of, of the Nazi party and, and can see what a what an awful person Hitler is and that the, you know, this is not the answer to the problems in their neighborhood. And, you know, he convinces his mother to get out and vote because he's not old enough and and vote against the Nazi party. So you sort of get this way, way in the background, there's sort of this celebration of, yeah, see, the the Swedes didn't fall for that whole Nazi thing. (laughs) That, That may be part of why this movie is as beloved in Sweden as it is, but who knows? So what was your kiss selection for this week well i went in the complete opposite direction of kitchen sink and i decided to choose when the cat comes by Wojciech Jasny. This is a movie. (laughs) Man, like, so I chose this because I heard about it as being a movie about a cat that comes to town and when it's not wearing its super cool shades, uh, people turn different colors. And that's what this movie is about. (laughs) And I have to say that if you, you know, that's all it takes for me to want to watch a movie and if you Google this film and you look in Google image search, you will see the sweet, sweet shades that this cat wears. And you're going to want to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a big animal person, so it makes sense. I love animals. This is the closest thing to a kid's movie we've we've watched on this podcast, isn't it? I mean, it is a kid's movie. This really. is very much a kid's movie and sort of to my dismay in a way. But yeah, I mean, so essentially there's this mysterious traveling circus. It arrives to a village because this guy, Oliva, talks about his past. He used to be a part of the exact same circus. And uh, after he tells the story, suddenly it, it magically arrives and there's a cat and it's a literal cat that gets held by Diana, who is this beautiful woman. And when they take the glasses off, people in the village change color. And Oliva says that this is the reason why he had left was because the cat got, I think, killed. Like in a murderous rage, people came and attacked the cat. Because when I say that people turn colors, they turn colors based on what's in their soul. (laughs) Change color according to their nature and actions is what the movie says. Yes. So liars become tinged with purple and the unfaithful turn yellow and the thieves all turn gray. And then the lovers, people who are in love, turn bright red. And the way that this movie is done is like they all get these like color washes over them completely. It's super trippy and strange. 
So the movie is basically just the village reacting to this being outed, essentially. There's a bit of like the Pied Piper in there. There is a bit of... It actually reminded me a bit of The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, which is another 60s movie that I hope we can talk about at some point because I, I like that movie way more. And even it kind of r- reminded me of the, the book The Master and Margarita, which just only because it, they, it features a traveling circus with a talking cat. 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T was a movie that, that definitely came to mind for me. Oh, I haven't seen that one. It's a f- 50s movie written by Dr. Seuss, but it's got the same sense of wonder and very much from a child's perspective and pretty trippy but i don't like this as much as the five thousand fingers of dr t but it's if you like that movie then uh, this you definitely should check out when the cat comes yeah this movie honestly was a little disappointing just because the cat looks so damn styling in those glasses (laughs) that nothing really lived up to just how great that cat looks the circus stuff was fun there's like a black stage with people all dressed in black moving objects around that are well lit so they look like they're floating around the screen kind of thing and the color washes on people was very choreographed there's a lot of moving bodies in motion there's a lot of dancing when people turn colors that sort of seems to go hand in hand with with turning different colors as you have to start dancing around a lot of special effects so that you can have people of, of with, with different color washes on them dancing on the same screen at the same time they were doing something probably very exciting with color in 1963 but it's a fairly straightforward kids movie it's very moralistic you know like uh, besides the kind of intriguing plot of a traveling circus and you know there's no real explanation which isn't necessary or you know needed whatsoever you know it's like there's this there's a school a headmaster who's kind of a jerk and he's like the kind of a brown noser communist you know he wants everything done for the the good of you know whatever the rules essentially and you know and the kids sort of can see through all the the bs and the the cat just represents another way for everyone to see through the bs and to point out who's who's a good person and who's a bad person and uh, I don't know, there just there wasn't enough whimsy in this for me. Well, there's you know there's enough whimsy in it for maybe half a movie, and that was my problem. That they're the the magical parts are magical, but then they stretch them out for for much too long, and there's you know just not not quite enough there to to fill a feature. I don't think an American child would would have much patience for this movie. Well, there is like after they get through the fun parts they spend too long on the adults in this movie. Like the Oliva is an interesting guy because he's this wanderer who comes to town and, you know, he clearly has the ability to speak to these kids like equals. And so they all appreciate that from him. But the rest of it, I mean, it's just like all these people, these middle-aged people frolicking in a field and drinking wine and like learning how to love again. And who cares? I don't care. (laughs) I'm closer in age to them and I don't care, you know? So it's like, I just want to see that cat. I don't know. You've got Robert, who's the really liberal teacher that the conservative principal hates and wants to, you know, kick out. And you're you're on Robert's side, and he's he's like he's anti-hunting. The the principal is like shoots storks out of the sky, and but Robert is you know filming them with a camera, saying that's a better way to learn. And it's it's clearly got a political, or not even necessarily political, but sort of a, a moral agenda as you were saying, and, and it's very much against 
uh, small town closed-mindedness and it's funny it's you know raven's end is a you know depressing drama but there's so much kindness shown towards all the you know very flawed people in that in that neighborhood where and this movie is a wacky goofy comedy and it's it hates everybody in the town <laughs> like there's so many you know pretty much everybody in the town is is awful everybody turns you know one of these colors to reveal that they're you know their true nature and and it's you know pretty much just robert and the kids are the only likable people in the, in this place and and uh i mean the movie definitely loves kids and it, it sort of stops a while to show you kids painting pictures and and doing cute things and should also note that there is something kind of metatextual going on here that a Czech audience, a Czechoslovakian audience at the time would, would definitely appreciate the Oliva or, and the magician are, are played by this Jan Varek guy who was a well-known playwright and story writer in Czechoslovakia. And he was, was sort of famous for writing these children's stories. He co-wrote the screenplay for this movie. So uh, him just sort of being in town narrating this story i think the only explanation that you know anyone in czechoslovakia needs is that oh this is jan verik so he's you know he's telling us one of his stories here so that maybe part of why it, someone outside of czechoslovakia might not you know get on its wavelength immediately because they don't have that way in yeah that's probably true I kind of see this as being a movie that I can clearly see how this could have influenced people to then creating better things. <laughs> you know, like there's sometimes these, there's something that, you know, you get a whole group of filmmakers uh, or, you know, artists that will point to something and say like, ah, yes, when this arrived, the first time I saw this, it really changed everything. And that's kind of what this feels like. Because again, like, I mean, for, for the time, you know, from the films, at least, that we're watching in conjunction with this, which was a really random assortment from various countries, but of all the other things we've seen in 63, this is pretty cool as far as special effects, you know? Like, it's it's like, it's artistic and it's interesting, and it definitely is has a lot to say about the benefits of cinema, and it also, I think, I, it does have a nice message about time, and there's a scene where he talks to, the Oliva talks to his, his double the magician and, and he says why doesn't uh you know the woman remember me because they had a romance and he was like ah youth has a short memory but and only the old reminisce you know like there's also a line about how um they want wanting to turn your imagination into a perennial flower as opposed to having it uh you know spring up and then die as you get older so i appreciate that much and and i can see how someone could watch this and then really you know let their imagination run and and take it somewhere else so it's, it's kind of an, it's an interesting movie it's not that it's bad it's just the pacing is like it's not even that long and it feels very long <laughs> i was excited to watch this movie because we hadn't done any czech new wave movies yet on cinema 60 and it turns out that this really doesn't belong in that category i think maybe because it's such a children's movie Wojciech Jasny sort of benefited from this group of directors who, who were you know making these internationally seen films from Czechoslovakia but you know this isn't the sort of experimental darkly absurd uh, sort of thing that the Czech New Wave was famous for with like the Milos Forman films and Jury Menzel with closely watched trains and Vera Chitilova with with daisies and those are some of the more famous ones and this this doesn't belong in the same category so so we'll have to 
very soon, I think, uh, deal with the with the Czech New Wave head on, and, and I'm excited to do that. But we're getting closer. So now, now it's time to talk about the movies we love from 1963. I chose a Spanish film, The Executioner. <laughs> Garcia Berlanga is the director, who is one of the most beloved filmmakers in Spain, and uh, The Executioner is one of the most beloved movies in Spain, but uh, there's very little awareness of either in in the U.S. Uh, Criterion released The Executioner, you know, five years ago on on DVD and and Blu-ray, and uh, and he's finally getting a bit of recognition in this country, but uh, not as much as I would hope based on how much I loved this movie when I I saw it not all that long ago for the first time. It stars Nino Manfredi, an Italian fellow. The movie's actually an Italian-Spanish co-production, but it was was shot in Spanish and, and, you know, set in Madrid uh, for the most part until our main characters go to Parma. But it's about uh, an undertaker who doesn't have great luck with the ladies because you know, most people are creeped out by the fact that he's an undertaker. Um, but he's, he has a little fling with the daughter of the executioner, you know, one of the very few executioners in Spain because she also has the same problem that, that people don't want anything to do with her because her father kills people for a living. And in order to secure this you know, really nice apartment, uh, Jose Luis Rodriguez, uh, played by Nino Manfredi, uh, agrees to, you know, take over as executioner for Carmen's father, who's pretty old at this point, and you know, close to retiring. And Jose Luis plans on quitting if he finds out that he ever has to kill somebody. And at that point, they'll have already secured the apartment. So he hates the idea of of being an executioner. He does not want to have to kill anybody. But uh, you know, he's this is uh, sort of. Uh, you know, an opportunity for him to live a little bit better. So he, he goes along with it knowing that he's, you know, he, he, he can get out before he actually has to kill anybody. And this is definitely a comedy, but it, it packs a, a serious punch. Like it's got a real like anti-capital punishment message to it. What do you think of this movie? I was going to say anti-capitalist, actually. Yeah. <laughs> this is a movie where I'm almost, I forget sometimes that it's in Spanish just because it feels so Italian, and especially for 63. Mm-hmm. We'll definitely have to do an episode on the Italian economic boom and all of those mm-hmm. films that came out of it because this feels right at home, both in its its sense of humor and its message. To me, it feels like a movie about the things we sort of will do for money and how far will we actually go. Because, you know, Manfredi, who I love always, we mentioned him in our first episode with (laughs) a not-so-great movie, but uh, he's in a bunch of good movies, and he has such great comedic timing, and he's just the perfect, he has perfect, like, reactions to things. Yeah, I didn't realize the first time I saw it how much this depends on how good Nino Manfredi is at, at what he does for it to be successful. He's playing sort of this weak-willed guy you, you sort of don't like him because he's just sort of 
goes along with things and he's trying to weasel his way out of it the you know for the whole second half of the movie and uh you think oh you this guy's kind of a jerk. He should, he just needs to man up, and 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 it's and it's all thanks to Nino Manfredi's comic ability that it just totally sells this movie. Well, I love that scene of him where the, the, he sees two guys trying to escalate a fight, and he jumps in <laughs> and he stops this fight, and you think he's doing it to be like a good guy, and then later on he's like, no, if if that guy pulls a gun and shoots him, then I'm gonna have to kill him. Like I don't want to do anything. <laughs> It's like <laughs> I felt very Italian that moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the joy of this movie is is just seeing his nervous energy and in contrast to his father-in-law's sort of frank uh, casualness about his job as an executioner. There's just a lot of dry humor about about death and about how you keep your dignity or or you know when in in face of, you know, the benefits that money will get you essentially. You know, he even only en- ends up getting married to this daughter of the executioner in part because, as you said, no one will date him otherwise and no one will date her. And she's cute. He's attracted to her. Uh, and then um, he kind of gets lets himself go. And then they end up having sex and the father finds out and now they have to get married, which then makes him, you know, his position even worse because now he has to become this executioner and, and inherit this because typically it's passed along in a family. And then plus he gets that sweet apartment if he sticks with it. But at what cost? But you love this movie. I really do. And watching it again, I realized just how much. And I think it's just that, you know, the ability to sell a really dark message using comedy. And I think that that's why it packs such a wallop for me at the end when he's, you know, they drag him kicking and screaming into the execution chamber where he's got to garrote this guy even knowing it was coming this time, it still hit me really hard. I mean, I think a lot of the the Italian movies that I might compare this to, there's sort of a, um, you know, casualness to them is sort of offhanded, sort of thrown together quality that's just sort of like, you know, having a good time examining the, the, the Italian character and just putting these Italian types up on screen and seeing what happens. But this movie is really carefully thought out and every scene in it is there for a very specific reason and it's jose luis's brother is a is a tailor so he's always measuring people and he and you know that that comes back later in the movie when uh, you know he's having to measure the the necks of the of the condemned to to see you know how how big he has to set the garage and um, (laughs) this movie knows what it's doing and i always i i love when i can watch a movie that hit me really hard the first time and and go through and see how carefully it was designed to do exactly you know have that exact effect on me that it did and it's a masterpiece it's an underknown masterpiece that needs to be seen there's also um if if i knew more about you know film and censorship under the uh the franco regime i might be able to tell you what kind of political message this movie has because it definitely is you can see from how it's constructed that it is it's very critical of Franco and his dictatorship but it's done in such a way that makes it seem universal enough that you could see how it kind of got away with it I mean it's it's very much about the father Amadeo the executioner uh the, the father-in-law he says at one point that um you know, if people are going to make laws, good or bad, they have to be enforced. And that, that sort of, to me, felt like a 
It's kind of a jab at the Franco regime. I do like how much they talk about how humane the garrote is. <laughs> I had to look up exactly what was involved in it. You put this metal loop around someone's neck, and then there's a uh, sometimes a giant spike in the back of this wooden beam that their back of their head's on. And then the executioner has to essentially insert this key and then keep twisting until the metal pushes the person's neck into the spike so that they pass out, hopefully, before this happens, but they sever your spine. (laughs) There's, like, a lot of scenes of of the, you know, the father saying how much more humane this is than old Sparky or something like that, which I I found pretty amusing. (laughs) And apparently this was used up for until the 70s or something horrible, but seems downright medieval to me. Yeah, and I'm sure that's commentary on the cruelty of Franco. But yeah, you look at this contraption and it's uh, clearly not the way that that anyone would want to go. Yeah, there's definitely a lot about... Then maybe this is the political aspect. There's a lot about justifying why you would carry out these sentences. Like, you know, the end of the film, I don't want to totally spoil it because I think of, of all the movies that we watch, I, this would be my, my number one choice too for you to go home and see. But the end of the film, they're in Palma de Mallorca. It's like this paradise island, of course, and, and this is where someone's going to get executed. You know, Manfredi is just like, he he refuses, absolutely like cannot do it. He's just trying any way he can get out of it, trying to figure out any possible thing. And then you have all of the prison guards who are sitting there trying to talk him into doing it and telling him things like, you know, you can't make him wait. And even the priest will come. The priest that gives the last rites to the prisoner is like, you know, come on, man, you gotta, you gotta do this. And there's, there's one of them that says like, you can't make the prisoner wait. He's already resigned to it. It would be so cruel to make him wait more, you know, like why, how, you know, you have to kill him. Like, this is the, the most humane thing that you could possibly do. And, you know, of course, the, the morals of this is just ridiculous. And then to have, you know, Manfredi in his, like, light suit and Panama hat <laughs> there as the executioner. Hats are important in this movie. Thought I'd be able to decode the symbolism there, but there are a lot of hats falling off, and it's uh, something to keep an eye out for, too. But I think... Part of why this movie got away with its critique of Francoism is that the, a lot of the you know the prison guards and the warden they're all very kindly like they talk to Jose Luis trying to explain to him that why he needs to go through with this and it's a horrible thing that the government is making him do but all of the people who are enforcing these laws who are, who are making it happen all seem very nice it doesn't feel critical of the government until you, you know, sort of step back a bit right. and say, wait a minute, this is, <laughs> this is horrible. Yeah, and then there's this last scene that is just, as you said, it's like floored you. So I don't want to totally spoil it, but it, it definitely, I think, hammers home the, you know, what uh, Luis Garcia Berlanga wants you to, to really get out of this, you know, and, and it, it cuts through the comedy and turns the whole thing into a satire. And in that moment, if, if not before... Yeah, and the way this movie ends, like the very final shot where it's the executioner family going home on a on a boat and they see this party boat full of uh, rich people you know, heading off in the other direction. And, you know, I don't think it's pointing a finger at Jose Luis and, and saying that he's 
capitalist swine or anything. He's just sort of doing what he can to make his life a little bit better, you know, instead of living with his brother and wife and, and just struggling to make ends meet. He's sort of doing what he has to do. And, and I think it's it's more critical of a society where we, we, we're forced to have to do these horrible things just to make a living and, and just to contrast what he's going through with these rich people on their party boat as, as they, you know, dance off into the sunset really drives the point home that it's these people will never live the lives of those those wealthy people, no matter what they do. And then it's it's just the, the chosen few who get to sort of live free and, and enjoy their lives and have no cares. And, and uh, you know, the, all the, the rest of us have to do things that we find morally reprehensible just, just to get by. I was going to ask you about that La Dolce Vita boat, and you totally just solved it. Yeah, but I, lo- I love that movie. That's a, it's a great movie. Please, everyone, you got to watch this. Bart yeah. married it for a reason. El Verdugo. Well, you chose an Indian movie for your Mary, our first Indian movie on Cinema 60. There's a handful of movies that I would have married from this uh, year, but I, I decided to go for something that would be a little more interesting a movie I think that I, I want I want to encourage people to watch. So it was the the Big City by Satyajit Ray. And so, I mean, you probably know the director. He's very well known and celebrated, especially in England. He did the Apu trilogy, which is Pedro Panchali and um, which I mentioned before once <laughs> briefly. Yeah. Well, our last episode, we, we mentioned it, right? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm consistent. And uh, yeah. And I mean, he's been so influential to so many filmmakers, especially even modern filmmakers and and he's someone you got to know about wes anderson is a huge fan yeah wes anderson loves him so if you like wes anderson get on it especially charlotte the the movie that ray made after this one is very much for the the wes anderson fans to watch but uh yeah darjeeling limited is a love letter to to sachijit ray but uh you can you can see how ray may have influenced wes anderson with this movie too yeah, of all of his films, I actually, I feel like I don't hear about this one particularly often enough. I thought it was terrific. I had never seen it before, and I I loved it. It's it's definitely up there with my favorites of his. Yeah, it's, so this is, it's set in Calcutta during the 50s, and it's about this family, and there's a wife, Arati, who is a homemaker, and she ends up being kind of, I mean, she lives with her husband and they have a young child and the husband's sister and then the husband's whole family, both his, his mother and his father live with them. And so it's just a lot. It's a lot of mouths to feed. And uh, Subrata, the husband has a job and he just is not making enough. And then that becomes very apparent when he loses his job at the bank, the whole bank folds and it's a big disaster. And so Arati decides to get a job as essentially as a door-to-door saleswoman. Her husband's initially really into it and he's really sweet about it. He helps her apply and he wants her to encourages her because this is just to get her out of the house, have her do something. 
But it's a big secret because if uh, his parents find out, they're going to be totally scandalized because, of course, a married woman should never leave the house unless it's to shop and, <laughs> you know, do things for other people. But, yeah, so the the whole film just sort of follows her life as a saleswoman and then the sort of fallout of what happens when the, the parents inevitably do find out and, the you know, when the husband uh, loses his job and, and everyone has to rely now on uh, Arati as the sole breadwinner for the entire family, which, of course, then turns her husband against her <laughs> uh, as he starts to feel more and more insecure. But this movie is just, it's fantastic, I mean, for multiple reasons. I mean, it, it just... It, it has just so much going on and it's all um, buoyed by just fantastic characters. Uh, you really get invested in uh, Irati and her whole family, uh, you know, like her husband. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, he's so charming and, and cute, you know, like he's just such a supportive and loving husband. And then halfway through, he turns into a typical man. <laughs> <laughs> but even that doesn't play out exactly how you expect it to. No. I mean, there is a... There's just so much love in this family that even when they sort of turn against each other at various moments, there's, you know, there's something deep there where there's still just this kindness and they can never really turn their backs on each other. And it's, I think that's part of what I liked about this movie so much is just that, you know, there's this very traditional family and it's very difficult, especially for the older generation, but even for the, you know, the current generation to accept the, you know, this, you know, working mother, it, it just... And she's she's so competent at her job too. Like she she immediately like rises in the ranks. Her boss really likes her. She does a terrific jobs. And it's the movie itself, you know, is very supportive of Arati and her job. And you you want her to continue with it. You don't want her to to go back. You know, to just being a housewife. Although you, it's, it makes it very clear what the conflict is there and why it's so difficult for her to continue doing this. Although it gives her a lot of you know feelings of self worth and she you know, feels really good about herself being successful in the workplace. It's, you know, it's, it, it takes a toll. Her, she, you know, she has to bribe her little son with, with toys to, you know, get him to accept that she's going to be out of the house a lot. And the parents, the husband's parents just really, you know, it takes an accident for them to sort of realize they've been undervaluing Arati and she's just doing the best for them that, that they can. And they sort of have to accept these new ways, the way that, the, you know, the, things can't always continue the way that they always have in, in this society. The whole thing with the father-in-law is re- is a really interesting subplot because essentially the father-in-law is the one who he straight up freezes her out when he finds out that she has a job. He is just totally, you know, and then his wife is, she sits there. She's sort she's like, seems like actually a little more open to it, but she spends most of her time just sort of weeping about like, mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I could, how could this happen to us as if this is such a stain on their family and their life, even though I don't, it, it doesn't seem that anyone but the, the, the elder generation finds this to be that scandalous clearly. Well, she's conflicted because she's, she feels what a burden she is on the, on her son and his family that they, you know, they, the, the, the their father, Baba, the husband's father is a, is a, school teacher who can't teach anymore you know never made that much money to begin with but now that he can't teach anymore they're the his parents are a real financial burden on them and she's she's weeping because she doesn't want Arati to work but she knows what a burden they are and she doesn't have a solution to the problem and you know it's all it's all so horrible and she's 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 the most conflicted character in the movie (laughs) 
I love the thing with the father-in-law because he then essentially, as you said, he's a school teacher. He starts to go back to all of his older students and straight up beg them for money. He, he justifies it in his mind that, well, you know, I gave you all the tools that to, to have you become the successful person that you are, which is not unvalid. I, it's actually, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's a type of, it's a really good argument for school teachers to be paid better. But, you know, all of his students that go off to be, high-powered lawyers and, do- and doctors and all of these things. And he finds himself, you know, and, and this, of course, is, has been spurred on by the fact that, you know, his daughter-in-law now has a job and he's so horrified by uh, that concept that he starts to even lie about his family. He won't tell them the reason why he's coming to his, his old students for money. He's saying that, well, don't you think that I deserve it? And, you know, I have a son. He, he's not, I don't, he's not in my life and, and I'm all alone kind of He stuff. doesn't take care of me. Yeah, he starts to, he just starts to lie. And it's fantastic to think about the fact that he he's more willing to debase himself. He, I mean, he's, he's straight up begging for money from these people. Uh, and, and this is a man who's so proud, you know, in theory. He's so proud that he can't have his daughter-in-law work. But he's not proud, and you know, it's like he's not too proud to like flat out beg. Which, of course, he he does realize after a while. He's he's become a jerk, and he does apologize to Arati. But yeah, I mean, that's what's so great about this movie is that there's just it's they they talk about gender roles and cultural expectations, and and uh, there's so much about the the romance and the marriage between Arati and her husband, and then even just compromise versus ambition. And, you know, there's a lot about how Irati, when, when she has, she's nervous about getting a job, she's unsure about it, she doesn't know, then it'll be temporary. But then when she's in it and she finds that she's the best salesperson out of everybody, she doesn't want to let it go. And it's not because the job's so wonderful because it isn't, she's essentially, they're selling like a knitting machine or something like that. It's some, some dopey uh, contraption. But, you know, now that she's had this taste of being really valued and then and then seeing money in her hand, you know, as opposed to being a housewife, which, you know, has plenty of value. But, you don't you don't see that nice wad of cash in your hand at the end of the Mm -hmm. day. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting to then see what and then once her husband starts to to rag on her about it, too, he starts to kind of nag her when she starts to bring in more money than him, because, quite frankly, she ends up being a better business person she knows how to talk to her boss and and she they figure out how to send the one white woman who also gets there's some racial profiling against this white woman uh they, what do they call her they call her like anglo-indian the anglo-indian yeah, yeah and and which is a, which is just sort of an interesting thing and she's living in, in pretty abject poverty herself this woman but they send her in to get the raise for everybody you know and it's it's there's a just a lot going on yeah, I mean they're used to having the you know the, the British people in charge, so they send the Anglo Indian to get raises for all of them or, or to get a commission for whatever they sell. It turns out that the boss is actually really racist himself and doesn't like the Anglo Indian because she's not Bengali and much prefers to deal with Arati and there's a whole another subplot with with her where you know, Arati has to confront uh, the the boss about his racism and. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie. Is If there's one complaint I have, and and this is sort of a personal thing, I'm not sure everybody would see it this way, but I, I this movie, it definitely falls in the sort of realist, neo-realist vein, but then there's, it has certain melodramatic tendencies where there's, there's some of the plot devices feel a little contrived, just the, you know, the timing of, 
you know, she's about to quit her job and the bank closes on the same day. And it's, it all just, you know, in the interest of making things happen, I, I feel like some of the movie's melodramatic tendencies work against how real it feels for most of its running time. I don't know, I hate to complain about it because I, I really like this movie so much. It has a kind of ham-fisted ending. I mean, the whole thing with the boss I, that, and, and how, I mean, he, he's so friendly to her that I literally made a note that the boss is too friendly and it's unrealistically friendly for a boss. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, you know, later on, it, it turns out that he's actually a secret asshole. Not so secret. You know, he's very kind to her. And then when she stands up for her other co-workers, that's when he, he admits to her. It's like, well, you do their jobs, you know, better than they do. So I, I'm going to fire them and keep you on for the same pay. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, there there you go. (laughs) And then there's a whole big, like, up the workers' rights ending of this that sort of, like, I I can appreciate, like, I'm down with it. But um, it feels like they they was, like, they slapped on a moral ending for a film that had so many, that had too much for them to, you know, wrap up in a bow. And I actually think that it would have been better to just focus on the romance and the characters instead of trying to get in that, like, last bit (laughs) about... You know, there's like a line like earning our daily bread has made us cowards and, you know, we have to stand up for our rights and ourselves. And it's like, yeah, OK, sure. But I mean, that's that's not why I watch this movie particularly. But yeah, but it, it does end up its re- resolution falls on the one part of the story that we really care about. And it's the relationship between the husband and wife. And it's, you know, it confirms that, you know, they, they have struggles and they, you know, don't always see eye to eye, but they're, you know, they're going to be there for each other. And that's, that's nice. I mean, it, it felt earned. I was surprised that it didn't go for an ending that resolves more of their, you know, sort of financial issues and that sort of thing that it's, it, it, it recognized that the, the focus is really on the husband and wife and, and what they're going through. And so I appreciated that. It, but yeah, you're right. It didn't, didn't need that whole worker's right aspect thrown in at the end there. But I mean, overall, I mean, it, this is just, it's just a charming film. And I think it's, I think this is a pretty good introduction to, to Ray. If you haven't seen any of his films in some way, I, I think it's a, it's a better introduction than the Apu trilogy because it's less depressing. <laughs> yeah. And it moves. There's, you know, there's enough going on that you the Apu trilogy is, it's more atmospheric like you're just sort of living in the little village and and following this guy's life that's not always so eventful through three different you know parts of his life and and uh it's i mean it's great you've got to see the apu trilogy but this is a good way in for sure it's also nice you know as we've mentioned before it's just not that many movies from the 60s in any country that was uh, I think a sympathetic and is focused on women and especially progressing women's rights, which this movie is very progressive and, and uh, very sympathetic to uh, Irati and, and her struggles and, and the, the sort of nuances of those struggles. It's, she's never, you know, she's even almost one of the best portrayals of a feminist in that she's not setting out to break any boundaries. And then once she's broken them, she realizes it's like, how did I get here? And and why does it feel so good? (laughs) It's interesting to watch this movie back to back with Charlotte too, um, which, which came out the year after this one, um, because it's the same actress, Madhavi Mukherjee. 
and uh, she's playing a, a very different character. She's the the wife in a, in a well-to-do family, and she's got nothing to do. This is you know in the big city. She's got much too much to do to like take care of everybody, do her job, take care of her family, and in short, Yulata, she's a rich woman who doesn't know what to do with herself, and she you know turns to to poetry or short story writing. So I think the but they're both you know very female focused and you know close examination of of a woman's place in indian society and then definitely recommend you know if if you like the big city move move right on to sharyulata after that we'll also say that um for anyone who's a fan of bollywood uh jaya bachan shows up in this uh as a teenager so that's for that's for uh, anyone uh, who cares about bollywood because she was a, she's a big uh bollywood star but that's oh yeah jaya Bajuri, who married Anitab Bachan. Yeah, she's the younger sister in this. So now, now it's time to get ugly and uh, talk about some, some movies we don't like so much. That's maybe the best part of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't like to rag on movies too much. I, I always find something to like in, in most movies. Just, Not uh, these two. That's why I think it's more fun to pick movies like like the ones that we've picked here that are kind of sacred cows where, yeah, they're not the worst movies that came out in 1963, but they're, well, maybe (laughs) I chose it's a mad, 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 mad world. And maybe you do think it's the worst movie that came out in 1963. And I don't think that, but I really just, it's, I think it's a really loud, really obnoxious, really long comedy that doesn't make me laugh at all. But it's also, it's, it's very much about the time that it's in. Like, I, I don't think, you can't watch a movie that's more 1963 than It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. It's got all these old-timey comedians who are still, maybe not quite in their prime, but, you know, a lot of them had moved on to TV at this point. But, you know, like Milton Berle and Sid Caesar and Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney and Phil Silvers and... And Jonathan Winters, Spencer Tracy is kind of the main character, but he doesn't have all that much screen time. He's not, uh, he's, he's the one non-comedian in this movie, I guess. But it's really just a collection of all the, like, previous generation's finest comedians in, in one movie, in one three-hour-long movie, and they're all running around trying to, to find this $350,000 that had dying criminal played by Jimmy Durante uh, tells them is buried under a, under the big W in this park and uh, so there's a there's a race to get to that park first and dig it up it's a lot of yelling it's a lot of sticky humor it's a lot of slapstick it's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot this movie is a lot one thing i do have to say for it is that it's a really long movie and there's definitely plot lines that go on for too long you're like when Sid Caesar and his wife are stuck in the basement for an hour and a half of the of a three hour long movie you're like okay get on with it already but it's I I think this movie does move at a pretty good pace and it holds your attention it's just pretty obnoxious and not funny did you watch the three hour long version no I watched the regular version 
I haven't seen that version that Criterion reconstructed. I've just watched the same old almost three hour long version that that's the one that most people have seen. Well, I watched mistakenly the three hour version. <laughs> and I have to tell you, do not be me. Do not do that. Oh my God. I <laughs> I I don't here's the thing. I actually was looking forward to watching this and this had been on my radar. I mean like I kinda like all these old farty comedians <laughs> half the time. Heck even even old Jerry Lewis has a five second cameo. One of the few times I, I kinda chuckled a little in the movie. Ah, uh, so I didn't I <laughs> I think I mean I could have chuckled at the end, but by, it was way too late by then, you know. Like that's just kind of. I mean, I just this was just. I've never been so bored in my life, and and it was. This is like the movie. This is a movie I imagine that that guys like Mike Pence consider a guilty pleasure. You know, it's just like, mother, isn't it hilarious how these guys all try to get in the car at the same time. <laughs> Oh, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> How could you be bored? This movie's working so hard for you not to be bored. It's always got somebody shouting at you and, and repeating and, the same you know, line falling down and, and knocking down an entire service station just so that you're not bored. <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly why, because they're like, we're going to knock down that service station. We're going to knock down the service station. Whoa, we're going to knock down the service station. And then they <laughs> knock down the service station and you're like, oh, my God, an hour has passed. Like, what the heck? Like, I just, there's just nothing here. And I have to say, like, the one thing that was sort of interesting about that that three-hour-long version that I do not recommend you watch, <laughs> like, at all, um, it includes all of this, like, extra material that I guess was in the theatrical screening. So things like when there is a intermission in the middle and the screen is black, they still had, like, the cop radios going off during the intermission. So whoever anyone who's sitting there is still in the in their seats and waiting, you know, as opposed to getting up, getting more popcorn or whatever. You could sit there and listen to this sort of, we see the cars coming at, you know, like that, that kind of talk and chatter, which unfortunately wasn't That's funny, cool. but it was charming and uh. kind of neat. So like that was interesting. Seeing what was cut was sort of interesting because, oh, my God, was it totally worthwhile? I mean, this is like the type of thing like like I'm sure there was a lot of effort and time put into recutting this and, and restoring it. And boy, was it wasted. <laughs> there's just nothing there. I just there's nothing. Everything that was cut, which you can tell because the quality of the image shifts or sometimes they only have a photograph. Um, it, it's just it's nothing. It's just crap. <laughs> <laughs> it adds nothing to it. It makes long scenes even longer. Yeah, I mean, there's just no dynamic. That's terrible editing. I mean, this is this Stanley Kramer just was awful. I'm sorry. The guy can't do comedy. What else did he do? The Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was uh, <laughs> probably his next film after this, Written also written by William Rose. Very different kind of comedy, but equally as flat-footed and hasn't aged well. You got to cut for comedy. I mean, this just, it, and we've talked about this. <laughs> There's just such a difference between a, a director who knows how to actually get a laugh and someone who just says, well, that's funny in the script, read it and we'll shoot it. You know I mean? Like this just, <laughs> there's just nothing framed well. And the stuff that is done is actually those big, crazy stunts. I mean, like when you have the plane yeah. that's headed towards, you know, they're, they're, 
you know, Buddy Hackett's trying to land a plane and he doesn't, they don't know what the heck they're doing. And it keeps sort of buzzing the, the control tower and you see everyone, it's clearly blue screen, but like you see everyone in the control tower just sort of, you know, taking their last breath and, and <laughs> expecting that they're going to die any second. You know, it's, it's amusing. I get it. Like, you know, this stuff that typically I, I would find very fun but when it just goes on and on and on and you keep doing the same joke, this like the repetition of like one mediocre joke over and over and over, sometimes that can then slip into being funny to then hilarious. But then it just goes back to boring again if you just keep doing it. And that's kind of the problem with this movie. I mean, like, you know, it happens in the first five seconds. OK, uh, they're going to have a car chase and like now they're just going to chase each other. Until finally, when they get to the end, I mean, the only thing that I thought was really memorable was that final scene with the um, on the, the ladder. ladder. That was interesting. Yeah. That's... And that was sort of fun. And that was really cartoony. That's a good, huge set piece. But like at that point, it, I was it lost me. My brain activity levels had flatlined. And uh, I literally I cleaned my entire apartment during this film. <laughs> literally. I never left the room, so I can say that I definitely watched this entire movie. I could see it from wherever I was cleaning, but I could not concentrate on this thing. But you love it. What? <laughs> see, I do have a grudging fondness for it just because I've seen it a few times. You know, I, I like these actors, and it's sort of, I like where it's coming from. It's sort of a last hurrah for an old style of comedy. Like, it's very, I mean, not only is... You know, do you have people like Buster Keaton show up in cameos and, and, you know, just a lot of like Keystone cops sort of chase comedy and you know, the Three Stooges are in there just as a punchline. And, you know, it's sort of, I feel like they're saying, okay, they're, you know, the movies are giving way to this sort of, you know, teen beach comedy thing. And then, you know, it's all sex jokes now. And, but remember the old style comedy the you know, the stuff that was really funny and and so I like that the, the movie's trying to sort of play on that nostalgia and sort of keep keep it alive a bit for for three hours. But I think that like I I I, dis- I disagree because I think that this is actually way more towards the beach comedy than it is old style comedy because I can get a kick out of old comedy. I, I actually I don't dislike the the people that are in this film. Like I Buddy Hackett has, has definitely made me laugh. <laughs> I mean like <laughs> not in this film, but like he I don't think anyone in this is like in, inherently terrible. Uh but that's what's so disappointing. I mean like there's literally a joke where that the British guy Terry Thomas you know talks about like um, Americans love boobs too much and uh, if they stopped wearing bras the economy would crash tonight you know like okay <laughs> great mm-hmm. how funny the only person that got close enough to making me smile and it was only cuz he was such an asshole was Jonathan Winters yeah, he just sort of bashes his way through the movie. Yeah, he's just such an awful person. <laughs> and he just keeps doing terrible things to people that are just legitimately awful that, like, it was actually kind of fun because it was like everyone else is just so bled. They're just so run-of-the-mill. Well, he's not nearly as awful as Ethel Merman, Ugh. who, like, it really borders on misogyny, the way that she is treated in this movie and how awful she is. She's the only female comedian in this movie so like the it's it's so male like it's just one male comic after another after another after another and she's like the sole representation i mean there are other females in there who are just you know there to for you know 
as plot devices, I guess, or to, you know, as, as, as straight men. But uh, Ethel Merman is, is like the, you know, represents all the funny women in the world. And she's just this horrible, horrible person who, you know, a lot of what goes wrong for a lot of these people is, is because of her. Like she's, she's responsible for most of the chaos and destruction in this movie. And, and the movie ends with her slipping on a banana peel and everybody laughing because, oh, she finally got hers. Yeah, and she's and, a mother-in-law. That's literally it. Yeah. She's just there to be a mother-in-law and be terrible so that everyone can make their really terrible mother-in-law jokes that make one <laughs> conservative guy somewhere laugh, I suppose. Like, I, I just, it's just terrible. And, and yeah, it's super, it's super misogynistic with her. It's basically all of the jokes are her getting her skirt flying up over her head so she looks like a fat idiot. You know, it's like this mm. super obnoxious. I just don't get it. I mean, look, look. I'm and all of this said, if you love this movie, this people seem to love this movie. Like this isn't, you know, known to be a, a hated film whatsoever, but if you love it, you know, God bless you. <laughs> I think for a lot of people it's sort of you know, it was like me. It was just kind of always on T V, so you catch pieces of it here, pieces of it there, and you're like, Oh, this is kind of funny and you know, it, it's I think it's just one of those movies that you grow up with and so you sort of love it for that reason. I can't imagine you watching it for the first time and saying, this is the funniest movie I've ever seen. Well, I feel like if, if this is nostalgic, then there's plenty of other things that are older and better. <laughs> I mean, it is definitely a who's who of aging 50s comedians. One way in which this movie does seem kind of groundbreaking for the time is that I feel like it may have ushered in this whole genre of car crash cinema. Like, I can't think of anything earlier than this that is just all about destruction and the destruction of personal property and just so many cars getting destroyed and like 70s cinema is all about this and i feel like a lot of it got started here in 1963 with it's a mad 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 world i mean i think a lot of what was happening in the in 60s cinema is that you know they want they're trying to get people to the cinema and they want people to see money getting spent on the screen so destroying lots of shit is is the way that they did that and i think that this is one of the first movies anyway to to use that strategy oh let's just wreck a whole bunch of stuff people love it and you know had after this a you know a decade and a half two decades of just so much wanton destruction on the screen just so that people could see stuff get wrecked and so you know there's that i mean the final car chase was pretty good yeah it's all right well my hate choice is a movie um well my hate choice is right in the name i chose godard's uh contempt I was glad to hear that you didn't like this movie either because I think this movie really is pretty universally loved. Like a lot of people think this is Godard's best film. And I think we've proven with our Anna Karina episode that that we're Godard fans. I mean, we like his movies. Pierre LeFou is about as good as a movie can get, but we both dislike contempt. And uh, I'd, I'd like to hear your reasons why you don't like it. 
Yeah, well, I mean, like, the, you know, so the plot uh, is essentially that uh, Michelle Piccoli plays Paul, who is a French playwright. He's married to uh, Camille, who is uh, played by Brigitte Bardot. Basically, uh, you know, Paul gets offered the ability to rework the script for Fritz Lang's screen adaptation of The Odyssey. Fritz Lang played by Fritz Lang. And there is this American producer named Jeremy, who's played by Jack Palance, who's just like a a great caricature of, of America. I appreciated that much. Um, he just sort of yells at everyone and makes no sense and is just, you know, typical. Like the scene in, in Perla Fu where Belmondo pretends to be American and all he does is just go, yeah, yeah, baby. <laughs> like that's that's who Jack Palance is in this film. And I and I do appreciate that. Yeah, so I mean, so they're in Cinecita. They're actually in Rome in the first scene. And essentially, I mean, the, the film just boils down to, I'm sure that most people have seen this movie. And if you haven't, uh, as as you just said, this is one of Godard's, I think, most celebrated and, and especially well-known. And this was a major hit in the U.S., uh, mostly because you have Bridget Bardot getting naked and... Look, I, look, I'm only human. Uh, Bridget, uh, she's uh, she's beautiful. What can I say? She's a good-looking broad. And um, the film really follows the destruction of the, this marriage between Paul and Camille. So here's the thing. I like Godard, and, and, but Godard, and, and as you said, as we've established, I, I am a fan of his. But he's also like, he's a very strongly male director. And the thing about that is that... <laughs> If you don't have someone like Anna Karina really like fighting for her own <laughs> and being charming on her own, I feel like the roles that he writes for women and the way that he looks at women is just it's pretty off putting. Well, wasn't it part of the his contract? Like he had to get as much Bardot flesh in this movie as possible. That's why he got the budget that he got for the widescreen full color, you know, exotic locations. They're like, Oh, all you gotta do is get BB to take her clothes off and, and people come see it. And so he, he delivered on that. And you know what, in a way, and now I, I hate, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in a way I could almost overlook that aspect of it. If it wasn't for the fact that she is just so unfairly portrayed in this film, she's just, her character is just terrible. She's pouty. She's catty. She just starts vague arguments for no reason. There is an implied reason why this, you know, she begins to, to hate and her contempt rises for uh, her husband here is because of the fact that he essentially unknowingly, which is which is worse, keeps handing her to the American producer as a, as a way to sort of appease him and to, you know, dip his toes into the waters of selling out, essentially, which is the other half of this film. But she's just so like... <laughs> The only way that you can watch this movie and accept that this relationship matters or that this divorce matters is to accept the fact that women don't know what they want and they just base everything on instinct and and their intuition and, you know, that everything that she gets angry at him about, he has a lot of plausible deniability about, you know, the fact that it is unconscious that he sort of pushes her towards this producer and then he sits there and, and he's the one who is very straightforward with, you know, like, this is a problem or this isn't a problem or why is this a problem? And even when he flat out asks her, you know what? I don't understand what, why, why are you doing this? She says, 
I, I will never tell you. And I, I just find her to be just like, you know, exactly what men think women are like, you know, that like, oh, she has an issue. It's, oh, it's probably because, you know, I didn't like her wig today or something. You know, it's like this just, no, like. Well, the real problem is you never get to see anything charming about her. You get one scene at the beginning where she's talking about, oh, you do you like my, do you love my knee? Do you love my chin? Do you love my butt? Yeah, with her and, butt, and like as he just, like zooms know. in to her butt. <laughs> yeah, just like taking her apart piece by piece, like making it really clear, okay, she's here to be objectified. And, you know, that's the only scene we get of them like expressing their love for each other. He, her seeming like she even likes Paul at all and like you know give us a little bit in the beginning to make us like her and and you know, like their relationship Have, get, get, give us let, let us get invested but she's just so charmless for most of it because right right away she's already her contempt is for paul is brewing because she, he's he's sort of using her as a as a prize a way to sweeten the deal with with this american movie producer uh without even realizing it and it's and it's like, even that's kind of interesting. Like I can see the germ of a good idea there. And even like trying to figure out what's, what's wrong. Why did, why does she, why does she have this big problem with Paul and like, let the audience, you know, be smart enough to figure it out. But then of course, later in the film, like Godard comes right out and has some characters say, oh, I guess Paul says, oh, you're upset with me because I had you drive with Jeremy, uh, as you know a prize or, or or something but like he you know it's this sort of one subtle thing about this movie gets spelled out very clearly later on in the movie and you're like oh okay what if I, <laughs> what if i sat through all this you don't love me anymore yes i do no you don't for like two hours for then you know it's I just, when you're just gonna like, hand it to me in the end she just she plays all these games with him and I just think that that's just so unrealistic. I mean, like, what, what, like, who has the time to sit there and, like, pick apart their own marriage, like, for fun, which is essentially what she kind of comes across as. And as you said, like, yeah, she's just like a joyless um, and, and personalityless character. She's just, she's beautiful. Got it. Check mark. But I mean, she, it, it, like, and then you have to accept that she's, like, beautiful and she's a bitch like period and that was always the appeal and the fact that paul as a character is you know he talks about some came running you see talks about dean martin's character he says he, he wants to be look like bama and that character you know is basically someone who just all he does is drink and gamble and then he finds out that he's dying and he just keeps smoking a cigarette so it's like this is meant to be our example of uh, what like you know the perfect man i mean it's like also, there's all of these, like, references, you know, there's a Hattari poster, right, when he accepts, uh, you know, his job with the American, and Godard loved Howard Hawks, and, and this, to me, just feels like he's just fronting on his masculinity, he's just trying to, to come across himself as, as someone who could have been in the Rat Pack, but uh, it was French, you know, it's like... <laughs> I mean, my main problem with this movie is it really just doesn't feel like Godard cared at all. And which is why it really puzzles me that this is one of his most beloved movies is that, like, I feel like he's he's hardly trying. First of all, it's got more of a plot than any of his movies. Like, it really, that for that reason alone... It was based on a book. Yeah, in Alberto Moravia, which I haven't read, but he wrote The Conformist and Two Women and, and you know, 
a, a very well known, well liked, especially by the French New Wave directors, um, author. And uh, so this movie does actually have a plot uh, compared to you know, especially in comparison with the rest of Godard's movies. And he hardly cares about the plot, you know, as usual. But there's nothing, there's none of his playfulness to kind of take its place. I mean, he does that little trick where the sound drops out while the people are having a conversation and I'm like, oh, oh, I saw this already and woman is a woman. Show me a new trick, Jean-Luc. <laughs> the only thing playful in this movie is trying to show us Bardo's butt as often as possible. Maybe it's just the fact that this movie does have a plot that make you know, people connect to it more than than other movies of his, but there's just not much there to latch on to. Even the whole like adapting the Odyssey thing is like, Oh, P- Penelope didn't really love Odysseus, or Odysseus stayed away from home because he was mad at Penelope. Oh, I'm Odysseus, you're Penelope. Yeah, because she was cheating. Yeah, well, what you know, all these really heavy-handed comparisons to to Greek literature just you know doesn't add anything to the movie, and it uh, spells it all out for you right in the movie. So there's nothing for an audience to work on there, to chew on there. It's just. You know, it's just all there right on the surface. Well, that's the thing, too, right? It's just that this this is the pretentious French foreign film that I think everyone loves to hate and hates to love. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and maybe that's the that is the, the, you know, besides the fact that it's like deeply sexist and obnoxious, that the fact that it's putting on as much pretense as uh, you know, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's putting on as much pretense uh, as this sort of, you know, having something important in, in you know, in Greek to say, <laughs> you know, is when it is. And I, it's just they're going on and on about Ulysses and, uh, you know, whether or not he was um, neurotic. And it's like, who cares? Like, <laughs> I just don't care. I just don't care about you're, you're saying, oh, he took this odyssey because uh, his wife was cheating on him or, you know, he was looking to cheat on her. Like, you know, maybe like, you know, France, maybe life is about like slightly more than just who's boning who. It's just it's too simplistic. And then I wrote down the dialogue because I just hate like, oh, there's a line where he says, show women a camera and then bam, they'll strip in a second. And it's like, yeah, OK, sure. Yeah, <laughs> women are doing that. They made that decision. Stuff about, um, you know, I'll never tell you why I hate you even if I die. And I hate you because you, you can't make me feel and. You know, <laughs> immediately she goes off with a hotshot jerk and she's like, you know, willing to do anything for him just to to piss him off. And then, quite frankly, I hate the ending of this movie so much, which is Bridget Bardot and the American getting into a hot rod car and then driving off and then immediately dying in a, <laughs> in a car accident. Very graphic. That makes absolutely no sense unless, like, basically they thought that they could get under a truck or that this truck just suddenly <laughs> rolled in the middle of a highway that has no bends or turns. It makes no sense. And it happens in five seconds. And I, it was funny. I was when we rewatching this movie for this episode, I was like, yeah, I don't like this movie. It's like. Uh, and then finally that ending happened. I was like, oh, yeah, that's why I hate this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sort of feels like a, a dark not funny joke on Godard's part. It's like, oh, it's like the accident is so unrealistic and it's 
it's not tragic at all. I, I don't know how, like, I feel like he's trying to undercut the tragedy on purpose. She's just a bitch, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, she's a bitch, so now she gets to die. It just feels very, like, and it's, I mean, and, and contrast that with Vive Savive, you know, where, where she gets shot in the end of that, too, for being a prostitute. And yet I cared more about that crappy ending than I care about this one. Which is just like, you know, you know, how dare she sell out before he gets a chance to sell out, you know, because he because he then takes back his uh, working on this film because he wants to save his marriage. But it's too late. I'm, I hate you and I'll never tell you why. And, you know, so. All right. So kill her. The real problem here is that Godard has never cared about his characters. You watch his movies to watch the performances of the actors so, you know, when you've got a Belmondo or a Karina, like his movies are so watchable because they're so watchable. You've got nobody in this movie with any charm. Michelle Piccoli, I've never found charming at all. Jack Palance is an asshole. Like that's his character and he's good at it. <laughs> Brigitte Bardot, she gets no opportunity to be charming at all. In fact, right before that tragic quote unquote accident um she has the only moment in the whole movie where she's charming where she says what she's going to do when she moves to rome and she's she can't communicate with the american because she doesn't speak english and he doesn't speak french and she's trying to say she's going to be a typist and she's a type stilo tap 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 and she does it a few times and i'm like oh there's the brigitte bardot that you know the world fell in love with she is in there somewhere but yeah and then she dies immediately but like that's you can't get through a Godard movie without charming actors, and these these are charmless actors. That's my real problem with it, more than anything else. Yeah, as much as I'm gonna shit on this movie, I don't I don't hate this movie. I don't think that it's like it's not worth watching. I just I definitely don't get it. And and short of just if you want to see like Bridget Bardot and her prime naked, which is totally valid, <laughs> you know, fair enough. But no, it's just, you're right. It just, it, it magnifies how lazy Godard can be. <laughs> like, more than anything. And I don't know. I mean, like, Fritz Lang is interesting. Like, I enjoy yeah. seeing him. I like the translator. I like um, this sort of, they speak English, Italian, French, and German. And uh, everyone seems to kind of understand each other or presume what the other person's saying. The little translator chick what was her name? I don't even remember, but she was actually way more interesting than, than Bridget Bardot was. And I will say again, of course, for Godard, I love that freaking apartment in this movie with its <laughs> bright white walls and it has a bright red couch and, and bright blue chairs. Love it. It's just so super stylish. And then when they end up in Capri and they're in this really bizarre villa that looks like a bunker <laughs> it looks like a you know i it's it's incredibly strange there's definitely visually there's interesting stuff i i like that crumbling i was that actually chinichita looked so crappy i can't imagine yeah i don't know i probably just back 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 lot or something i don't know i mean would i rather watch this movie than made in usa sure but it's definitely not top godard for me and why and you were talking about the apartment when and Michelle Piccoli at one point is is like dressed in a togo with a hat and he re- looks just like Marcello Mastriani in Eight and a Half, you know, and he's got the whip. <laughs> and that came out in '63 too. So I'm wondering, is the was Eight and a Half already a, a touchstone for people? And that's that was Godard's reference, or is it just coincidence? I mean, clearly the toga is a reference to 
you know, ancient civilizations or, or whatever, you know, playful thing Godard was trying to do there. But it really, like, the whole eight and a half thing, I mean, they're in Chinachita, so it must be must have been intentional, but... You're right. I didn't even think of that. My note literally says he's wearing a towel like a Greek. (laughs) (laughs) And then he puts the hat on because of the Bama thing. I mean, she has a nice bright red towel. (laughs) I'd love to buy a towel that looks like that. Just color wise. Yeah, it's got that Godard primary palette that's so appealing for sure. So what have we learned? What do do all these movies have in common? (laughs) I don't I mean, I, I was kind of noticing as I was watching all of these movies that the way that that comedy is kind of used in each of them from the most depressing like raven's end to to it's a mad 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 world which is just non-stop comedy like they all sort of use comedy in different ways so maybe the thread between all of these is just the fact that they all except for maybe the big city but the big city has has definitely has comedic moments but there's there's this is definitely like an interesting uh, parade of how comedy can be used yeah and maybe also how universal comedy is in a way the big city was funny i mean it's not you know there weren't so many gags it's just like kind of cute moments where the you know the husband is always being sort of sweet and goofy and in, in, in various ways and it's it's amusing and you know, i think my favorite gag in the big city is when the husband is trying to talk to his mother about arati being in the workplace and he says uh Oh, you know what Bernard Shaw says about working women? You know, and then he sort of recognizes that his mother is not the, you know, the right audience for for quoting Shaw. So he he just kind of drops it, and that made me laugh a little bit. Yeah, and the and the, you know, the relationship between Arati and the uh, Anglo Indian. There's a lot of you know playfulness and joking around, and it's you know you you get to like everybody in the big city because of their good humor and you know the way they interact with each other in in sort of a playful way so it's in all of these movies but used in very different ways right i mean the executioner is such a i mean the comedy makes that entire film that movie could have been like a horrible drama it could have Mm -hmm. been super depressing and and of course you know the fact that they cast uh, someone who knows how to do comedy so well nino manfredi who he's not a comedian specifically but i mean he's got it you know he's he knows how to do it that movie would be so different in like another director's hands i you could even take that same script granted that has like a handful of gags that are written into it but it's pretty intriguing at least i i think there's definitely a common thread of of our taste that we would want to pick stuff that either you know you're laughing or you're laughing through the tears i guess <laughs> yeah i think it's the the straight up comedy that was chosen this week that made me laugh the least of any of these movies maybe even contempt has a few gags that are kind of amusing playful in jokes on on godard's part and it, you know i sort of appreciated being able to recognize some of his jokes that he puts in there just for the movie fans so that was 63 and this was uh i think an interesting look at at least what was happening in different countries during a time where shit was about to get serious uh in the 60s i mean i'm really thrilled to approach middle 60s to late 60s with these kiss mary kill episodes because there's just such a wild crazy world that we're gonna start to get into and (laughs) i i mean i think what we really see here is that by 1963 cinema is a world art form you know in the 50s in america we're seeing things from japan and france had always kind of been present in movie theaters italy but you know we're getting 
things from every country in the world now. And it's really like major films that people, you know, still talk about. And this is really where people started to see the whole world in, in the cinema. And, and part of what made the 60s such an interesting time to be a movie fan was that you could go to the movies and see a movie from Czechoslovakia or India and, you know, see these worlds that, you know, you've never seen on a screen before. And I think that we sort of take it for granted because we've, you know, we've seen movies from everywhere at this point. But at at the time, like this was just a new opening up of this art form. You know, there's these smaller countries where there's a lot of state funding to like the like in Czechoslovakia, the you know, a lot of these smaller the Czech new wave happened because there was so much state support. So a lot of these smaller low budget movies were getting made and, and getting distribution and you know, uh Satyajit Ray was uh was an assistant for Jean Renoir when he made The River in India. And, uh, you know, he realized I can, I can do what Jean Renoir did. I can become a, a figure in the international movie scene. And, and you know, it's just ex- exciting that we're getting movies from everywhere now. Yeah, and the crossover between these films is pretty interesting to, to sort of see that the Swedish film felt so British and then to see a Spanish film feel so Italian. I'm not sure. I mean, it'd be interesting to see that. I know Sachi de Rey was making movies for an international audience, but, right. you know, the 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 Viterberg and the, and the Yasni and the Berlanga, I'm not... As far as I know, those were just you know there was no expectation that these movies would would go wide would would you know would get everywhere. I like watching these movies that uh, you know never had the intention of uh, having any kind of uh, universal messages or themes, and uh, you know being able to you know relate to them and and enjoy them so much as you know as an American sixty years later. So. Well, here's here's looking to our uh, next uh, 64 episode. And I also just want to say for anyone who needs to know that in the movie The Executioner, the song that plays in the beginning in the credits is credited as The Executioner's Twist. And <laughs> I just I want everyone to know in my living will that I would very much like for that to play at my funeral. You have it on public record now. <laughs> it's going to happen. But, you know, hopefully a natural death. Yeah, I hope you don't get garroted. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.